Well, good morning. I do want to welcome, of course, always those joining us online. I'm Pastor Zach. Shelly and I serve as lead pastors here at this great church. And we are also the parents of three really fun kids. Our youngest, Lucas, is five. Uh, it's been interesting as he's uh, been getting older. He had convinced himself, especially last fall, that the older you get, the bigger you get, which in some ways makes sense. The problem for him came in, though, when last fall, one of his friends turned five. He was still four. And he said, it's so weird. He's older, but I'm still bigger than him. That's just the way it works sometimes. And it's kind of a funny statement. You know, if that statement were true, we'd have like 12 foot six, 70 year olds in here. You know, that doesn't work out that way. But it is interesting because God does put within us a bit of a desire to become bigger, to grow, to mature, to become better. That's a God-given gift. Uh, But it is true that only that age group can receive the compliment of, you're huge. You know, tell a teenager or an adult that, uh, you'll get slapped, right? But there is a desire within us to become greater. And, And so what I want to examine today is a question as it relates to the Bible on what defines greatness. How can we be great in the kingdom of God? Because I've never met a person that has made the statement, I hope to accomplish nothing in life. We're just, we're not made that way. God didn't equip us with this life to say, I hope to just scoot by. No, there's something within us that says, God, I want to be a part of something greater than myself. And so I want to look at that through scripture as we head back into Luke today. So we haven't been in Luke for a couple of months. So we're heading back that direction now. And we're going to keep going through Luke this year. And we're going to be in Luke chapter seven. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Hey, if you don't have a Bible, we want you to have one. They're underneath the seat uh, in front of you. You're welcome to take that and read along with us today. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can take that one home as a gift from the church. But I'm also going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, simply to recognize the fact and, and be thankful for the fact that God gave his word to us. What a gift. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses 24 through 35. It's where we left off at the end of November. And here's what Luke writes. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? So Jesus is asking the crowd that's there. A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. These are the very words of God. You may be seated this morning. So I mentioned we left off in Luke last year. Where we left off is John the Baptist is sitting in prison. He sends some disciples to talk to Jesus. 
And after Jesus is answered, he turns to the crowd. And John and Jesus, they were cousins. John shared his, started his public ministry first. He was a mighty preacher. After 400 years of silence from the Old to the New Testament, there had not been a prophet of God raised up to preach. But then John came, and he lived in the wilderness preaching. He's wearing camel hair clothing. That's why Jesus says, did you go out to see someone in soft clothing? Obviously not. He wore camel hair. He eats a steady diet of bugs and date honey, and he yells at people for a living. What a great guy. John the baptizer, he starts his ministry of preaching and teaching, and multitudes, they come to hear him preach and repent of their evil hearts. That's what they're doing. And then Jesus is later water baptized by John. And then John gets arrested by Herod Antipas, one of Herod the Great's sons, because John is speaking against Herod for marrying uh, his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And so now John, he's arrested, he's sitting in prison, he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus this question, are you the one to come, are we to wait for another? Jesus answers these disciples, and then he turns his attention to the crowd and begins a conversation with them. That's the passage that we read this morning, so that's where we find ourselves today. And part of the conversation, there was this line that Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So that really draws some questions out for me, and that's what I want to get into today. Two questions. Number one is, why was John great? And then the second question, and how are we, as followers of Jesus, those, what we would say, as least in the kingdom, how are we greater? So two questions that I want to answer today. And the first answer that we find is, you can be great in the kingdom of God by maintaining a repentant heart. You can be great in the kingdom of God by maintaining a repentant heart. The message of John, it was a message of repentance, and in fact, we talked about it last year, that John is in the wilderness, he's preaching, and here's what he says in Luke 3, verses 7 and 8. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes, who warns you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way that you live, that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Not necessarily a way to attract a crowd, but somehow people are compelled because they know in the depths of their being, he's right, and I want to be right with God. John is calling people to repent of their sin. Uh, I don't know about you, but as I was, uh, I grew up in the church, and as a kid, you hear this word sin, and you kind of wonder, what is that? How do we define that? So what I want to first do is just define what is sin? What is, what is evil? And as we look at scripture, here's what we find. Sin is generally defined as lawlessness or faithlessness. So not living without, basically living without rules and living without faith. Sin is the missing of a target. That's another way to look at it. A wandering from the right path, the path that leads to life, that'd be another way to define it. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It's both the overstepping of a line and also the failure to reach it. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. If you were here the last two Sundays for a two-part series on Experience the Extraordinary, I talked about how we all have a divine calling. If you missed that, can I please encourage you, go back and listen to those two messages Really, really important for the life of our church and your life as a follower of Jesus. So go back and listen to those. Because if we miss that target, then we're not living according to how God would have us. Sin is living your life with anyone or anything other than the God of the Bible as the center of your identity and the source of your life. The psalmist, he helps to define our lives. He writes in Psalm 51.5, I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment 
my mother conceived me. So in other words, we were all born into sin. We, were, we started out that way. Sin is a human problem that leads to all of the isms, racism, classism, and so on. That's root of that is sin. Sin is a disruption of created harmony and then the resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relationship to God. That's what sin does. It disrupts that relationship. Uh, you know, I know that there's a lot of pastors that it seems like that don't really care to talk about sin anymore. That's challenging. And, and here's why I want to talk about it this morning. Because I am convinced you cannot know the goodness of God until you first understand the depravity of our own hearts. Man, we serve a good God. And he doesn't want you living in any way that would separate you from relationship with him. And so he made a way that you don't have to. And that's what we come together to celebrate. Sunday is resurrection day. And so we celebrate that God sent his son to die on a cross and be raised from the dead so we could be set free and live in his name. So I talk about sin because until we understand our hearts, we can't understand how good God is. He's good. And so this is what John is preaching about. He goes right to the heart of the matter. He's addressing the issue of sin and he's commanding, he's compelling people to repent of sin. And what's interesting is John stands against a whole nation. We see that there's people that don't agree with John. It says, you know, the Pharisees didn't participate in his baptism because he's saying, look, your problem is sin. Your, your problem is your evil hearts. That's a pretty bold message. In the first century, when Jews were convinced their problem was Roman occupation, their problem was Roman oppression. But John's saying, no, that's not your problem. Your problem is your evil hearts. Could I be so bold this morning to tell you that some of you, you might feel our problems today, they're tied to our nation, our government leaders. If you watch the news, you could blame it on world politics, Muslims, ISIS, refugees. I mean, you, you name it, it's out there. These aren't our problems today. The root of our problem today is evil hearts. And we all have them. And we have to start there. Because when we start there, then we know what the solution is. And we can't solve problems if we can't define what they are, because then we can't find the solution until we know what the problem is. And so we know the problem, so now we know the solution, and this is why repentant hearts matter. That's the starting point. You can be great in the kingdom of God by maintaining a repentant heart. So the question is, well, what is repentance? Let's define that. We've talked about what evil is, what sin is. So what is repentance? Let's define it. Later, as we continue in Luke, we're going to come to a parable that Jesus shares. He's talking about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And he talks about how they go up into the temple and they have two different approaches to prayer. And here's the, the response of the Pharisee. He stands by himself and here's his prayer. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But then the tax collector, standing far off, they could not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector is dealing with his own evil heart, not anyone else's. And what does Jesus say? I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down into his house in good standing before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is Jesus' definition of a repentant heart. Some people are notorious for overlooking their own evil hearts and talking about everybody else's. 
but real repentance is dealing with your sin nature before God, knowing God desires to make it right because he wants relationship with you. Why? Because he's a good and holy God. Now, sometimes it helps us to define things by what they're not, so I want to go that direction. So we see what repentance is as Jesus would define it, but what is it not? True repentance is not worldly sorrow. Paul, a New Testament follower of Jesus, he's writing the church in Corinth, and he's defining what repentance is. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 7.10. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. You see the difference? Here's what worldly sorrow results in. Worldly sorrow results in sorry hearts, but it doesn't result in changed behavior. That's the difference. Where repentance says, I'm sorry, Lord, I recognize I was wrong, and I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to do a 180-degree turn and no longer live that life because I'm a new creation in Christ. Do you see the difference? Two different kinds of responses. And the reason that you feel bad when you've done something wrong is because God gave you a conscience. We are his image bearers. He gave us a moral rudder. And so the Holy Spirit works through our conscience. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would convict us of sin. And the reason God gave you a conscience is not so that you would feel bad. No, that's not the point. He gave you the Holy Spirit so he could point you in the right direction so that you could have relationship with him. Only a loving God does that. And this is why repentance matters. So true repentance is not worldly sorrow. And connected to that, and this is sometimes confusing for Christians, is repentance is not confession. True repentance is not confession. You know, we think if someone's not living right and we approach them and we go and have a conversation with them to say, you know what, you know that this isn't living for the Lord, and they say, you know what, I'm sorry, I was wrong, you're right. And then a month later, you see that they're still living in that way, and you say, hey, I thought you said you were sorry. And they say, I was sorry, and I'm sorry again today, and I'm going to be sorry again next week and the week after that. Do you see the problem? Can I tell you this morning, and college students, I'm going to get on you for a minute, if you're dating that kind of person, run, baby, run. You don't want to date that person, right? No way, because that person doesn't care to change their life. They only feel sorry when they've done something they shouldn't have. Real repentance is a process, and here's the process. It starts with conviction. That's that Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit says, look, this is going to keep you away from God. Why don't you turn to him? And at that point, we can go one of two directions. We can grieve the Holy Spirit by saying, I'm not going to live that way, or we can run to God and say, God, you're right, I'm wrong, I want to live in your name. So then the next thing is confession. So confession's a part, but it's not the whole. So conviction, confession, where you say, you know what, God, you're right, I'm wrong, I want to turn away from that sin. And that's the important part. You've got to kill sin. It's not meant to live any longer. Uh, there's, as we lived overseas, one of the metaphors that we use is a target. So if you've got red in the center, in other words, that might be what we would label as sin, that which keeps us away from God. On the outside is yellow, which are those environments that point us to sin. And then green are the things that help us living for the Lord. Things like daily Bible reading and prayer time, those would be living in the greens. So we always challenge our people, live in the greens. Uh, I was uh, at a conference in Turkey, and we had gone out running with a couple of guys, and, and we were stretching, and a lady had come up, and I didn't see her at first, so one of the guys was stretching, um, and she, she wasn't wearing enough clothes by our definition of what would have been right. 
And, and so he was stretching, looked her way, and he yells to us, look the other way, look in the greens. That's the way we should live. We should have a heart to say, this is going to lead to the yellows. Let's live in the greens. That's what a repentant heart does. It has a heart to do that. Live in the greens. And as you do that, sometimes part of that process of conviction, confession, and saying, I'm going to turn away from those things, is you might need to make it right with whoever you harmed in that act. If you stole something, you might need to repay that. If you talk bad about someone, you might need to make it right in conversation with those that you were talking with. That's part of the process, all so that you can be reconciled to God and to others. Why? Because Jesus says, love God and love others. That's the way we should live. Jesus declared that John is great because he calls people to a life of repentance. And you are made great in the kingdom by living a lifestyle of repentance. Repentance is a gift from God to be enjoyed as we follow him. Because there's freedom in repentance. Man, Shelly and I as kids, we can tell when our kids maybe aren't making the best choices because there's just something that you can tell is a little bit off. And sure enough, later that day as they kind of spill out their hearts to say, man, I did this and I know it was wrong. And then what happens is joy and freedom comes. And that's not just for kids. That's for adults too. We're meant to follow Jesus in that childlike faith that says, Lord, I know you mean well for me. So here's my life. And then freedom comes. Reconciliation leads to freedom. And we want that freedom to be lived out. So if there's things in your life that you know are not pleasing to God, can I encourage you? Conviction is from God. Confession is important. And reconciliation sets you free. Enjoy the freedom that's found in living a life of repentance. You can be great in the kingdom of God by maintaining a repentant heart. And second thing this morning is this, is that you can be great in the kingdom of God by enduring critics and refusing to become a critic. You can become great in the kingdom of God by enduring critics and refusing to become a critic. This, these verses are very interesting. Part of what Jesus is doing is he's talking about, why did you come out to see John? And then he turns and he talks to those who have been criticizing John. And here's what he says. He says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. Why are they making fun of John? Because he's gluten-free and he's alcohol-free. That's crazy. And then you look at the critics in terms of what they're criticizing Jesus for, and it's like just the opposite. But isn't that how critics are? Like, they just don't make any sense. They come at things at weird angles. But part of what we find in the kingdom of God is you read through the New Testament, the way that we're great in the kingdom is we learn how to endure critics. And you want to know what the secret is? You turn those critics into coaches. You turn those critics into coaches. That's the way you got to approach it. Because here's what I know. As people come... And even if they come with, with not good motives, impure motives, if, if they come and don't have all the information on hand, sometimes you can find some truth in what they're saying. And you can take that as an opportunity to say, you know what, I see that they're right in this area, and that's going to help me become more like Jesus. You turn your critics into coaches. You know, the other side of this is not only enduring critics, but also not to become a critic ourselves. That's important. So where do you find yourself today? Have you wrongly criticized others? Have you put someone or yourself in the position of a critic where you define yourself by who or what you're against instead of what you're for? Because that's what critics do. They define themselves by what they're against instead of what they are for. And what we're finding in this passage this morning is that John encountered several types of critics. There was theological critics. You know, the Pharisees said, we haven't been baptized by John. Why? Because they really didn't see that as important. So you come up against theological critics. I've often said, man, 
may we approach people in the kingdom of God, our Baptists, our Methodists, our Nazarene brothers and sisters in the faith, and say, God, your will be done, your kingdom come, and we're going to work together to see that accomplished. And here's what I know. Too often, we can kind of create camps by which we can become theological critics, and that's not our calling. Now, there's always going to be a, a Lutheran theologian. Here's what he says. I appreciate his comment. 17th century, he says, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And here's what that means. No matter where we find ourselves, biblically rooted and Christ-centered people, there's going to be peripheral doctrines of which we don't always find agreement, and that's okay. But what's important is as we hit the core doctrines that we align ourselves with those things as a body of believers. And if you wonder what those are for this church, just go online. They're all listed for you. Things like Jesus is the Son of God, fully God and fully man. The Bible is God's authoritative word. Those are really important. Jesus is coming again one day. And so we're going to align ourselves to those things, and let's, not, let's be careful that we don't become theological critics. Does that make sense? Now, at the same time, I want to flip this to the other side to say, I love questions. In fact, that's why I love Luke. Luke is in response to the question of a believer that wants to know who Jesus is. It all stems from there. When you look at Luke chapter 1, where Mary, she has faith, but she has questions. So I get emails oftentimes about questions. So ask questions, but have faith, and let's just make sure we don't get into a critical spirit. Make sense? The other critic that we find here is people who are jealous of other people's success. We see that for John. He's saying crazy things. People still continue to come out. His ministry is growing, and the Pharisees are wondering why. And here's how you endure those kinds of critics. You serve them. People who look to your life and say, man, I want what they have, and I'm jealous of that individual. I become critical of that person. Just begin to serve those people and live like Jesus around them. And the way that you guard yourself from becoming that kind of critic is you trust in the sovereignty of God. If you know God has all things in his hands, then you're going to trust him with your entire life, and you don't need to concern yourself with the lives of others. The other kind that we find are the misinformed critics. What did they say of John the Baptist? He's possessed by a demon. And what does Jesus say? Greatest man born of women. Those two things don't mesh. And the truth is not found in the middle road. Some people want to say that sometimes. Well, it's somewhere in the middle there. No, he's neither demon possessed. If Jesus says that he's the greatest, then that's where truth is found. So you've got misinformed critics. So how do you not become one of those critics? You ask questions. If you're unsure about something, go and approach those individuals. Clear things up so that you're not a misinformed critic. Uh, that helps. Conversation matters in the body of Christ. The last one, critics who take up the offense of another. Someone you love is hurt or offended, so you become a critic of another. So you have to guard your heart against that. Uh, we find that in the New Testament all the time. And the way that you do that is encourage your brother or sister in the faith who you're offended for, hey, go live like Jesus and, and love that person like God would have you love them. Because those are John's critics as well. So I could tell you this morning that if you're a follower of Jesus, you'll have to endure criticism. If you haven't yet, it will come. You know, we, we uh, walked through those, uh, what it looks like to be qualities of the citizen of heaven, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, Bless, bless, bless. At the very end, blessed are the persecuted. That's the only one of those blessings that comes from outside. And when we were working with young adults in Israel, somebody asked the question, one of those young adults, but what if I haven't faced persecution? So one of our, our guys that started the school, he's in his 60s, his wife said, just wait, it'll come. Real, real confidence, right? But look at John, greatest among men, but what kind of life did he live? He was poor, he's later beheaded, he wasn't really very well liked according to world standards, and yet he was great in the kingdom of God. We're going to have to endure criticism. In fact, here's what I found. The more dedicated you are to following Jesus, 
the more likely you're going to face some critics, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, even complete strangers. And what you need to do in those moments is figure out how do you make those critics into coaches. You know, if you're sitting around a, in, in visiting family over the holiday, and one of your family says, hey, I thought you were a Christian, but I heard you say this and this about this person. In that moment, you have the opportunity to say, man, you're right, and thanks for helping me become more like Jesus. I'm going to help, I'm going to make sure that I change my attitude in that way. If you approach it through humility, God can change your heart. You can be great in the kingdom of God by turning critics into coaches. And the last thing is this, is that you can be great in the kingdom of God by being filled with the Holy Spirit. You can be great in the kingdom of God by being filled with the Holy Spirit. John was great because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. If at this point all I did was tell you John was great, you can be great, aspire to greatness, all I would be is a great motivational speaker. We could have a pep assembly and God wouldn't even need to be here. Anybody realize that? Absolutely. But that's not why we're here. What we find is, is when you look at the story of John, you see that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and that's what made him great. Right at the outset, Luke chapter 1 verse 15 says, John will be filled, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is John. And we find later in that same chapter, the hand of the Lord was with him. New Living Translation says, God's hand was on him in a special way. This is an extraordinary person. And he's extraordinary because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He operated his ministry out of that fact. And he, because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, he made the way, he prepared the way for Jesus to come. That's what made John great. And what we find as we look at the teachings of Jesus, we, we find that we are great in the kingdom of God as we are filled in the Spirit as well. This is what we find in Acts 1.5. Jesus, before he departs, he tells the disciples, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, why? He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is saying, look, to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to be filled with the Spirit. When you look at that verse, commentators have lots of uh, different arguments in terms of what that could have meant, that John was great, and the least in the kingdom is greater. And I think it's tied to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. As people are equipped and empowered and filled with the Spirit, they live close to God and empowered in His name. If you have questions about being filled in the Spirit, you can join Shelly and I on Wednesday nights. We're in the Bethel Chapel talking about naturally supernatural. If you can't make Wednesday nights, all of those teachings are online at connectionpointchurch.org backslash ns, just for naturally supernatural. You can work through it yourself. And I'd also invite you, uh, every year on a Wednesday night, we're going to be hosting a naturally supernatural event just encouraging people, we want to see you live great in the kingdom of God, so come hear about what that looks like. And so last year we had Linda Seiler come um, from Purdue Chi Alpha, did a great job of talking about what it looks like to live great in the kingdom. And this year on February the 21st, it's in your program, the announcement's there, everyone's invited, 6.30 till 8. We want to talk about what it looks like to live as great in the kingdom of God by being filled in the Spirit. You can be great in the kingdom of God by living a repentant lifestyle, by following after Jesus, by turning your critics into coaches, and by being filled with the Spirit. You know, as we, uh, Shelly and I, last fall, uh, it was very windy here, and our kids had never really flown kites, so we were really interested in, in having them learn to what it looks like to fly kites. And so we picked them up from school on a Friday afternoon, we brought their kites along with us, went to a park, we busted those kites out of their packaging, put them all together, tied the strings to them, 
began to teach our kids how to fly kites. And so they said, well, what do we need to do? I said, well, you need to kind of toss it up in the air and then you need to let it go. You need to let that wind grab a hold of that kite so it can soar to fly higher and higher heights. And so our kids were watching as it started to take off and that kite started dancing in the air and the, the tail did too. And it was neat as that kite was getting higher and higher, even the firemen across the street began to watch our kids fly kites. And as I was sitting there watching uh, them fly those kites, a story from the Gospel of John came to mind where Jesus, in talking with Nicodemus, uh, he's telling Nicodemus, he's comparing the Holy Spirit to wind. He gives a description of the Holy Spirit. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of that kite ripped out of its package and set to soaring because of the wind. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in people's lives. He sets you to soaring new heights that you could never have achieved otherwise. And that would be my prayer for you this morning, is that as we continue to walk together, as we go through the Gospel of Luke and look at what it looks like to follow Jesus, that you live great in the kingdom by maintaining a repentant heart, by turning your coaches or your critics into coaches, and by being filled with the Spirit. I'm going to invite you to stand as we close in song this morning. But before we close in song, I just want you to reflect, because we're going to sing and sing about who Jesus is and how we can approach him with repentant lifestyles. You know, what could your life look like if you were living in this fashion, living great in the kingdom of God by maintaining a repentant heart? What kind of freedom could you have in your soul? What kind of joy could you be living in? If those critics you had in your life, you turned them into coaches, how much happier could your life be, really? And if you really pursued the infilling of the Holy Spirit to say, God, I want more of you in my life and I want to be empowered in your name, how could you be great in the kingdom of God? You know, maybe you're here today and as we're going to close in prayer, I, I always want to make invitation that, that maybe part of your challenge has been the reason you don't know what it looks like to live great in the kingdom of God is because you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, that you never started with that repentant heart. But now there's a stirring in your heart today that would say, but I want to live like Jesus. I, I want to live great in the kingdom, not just by the world's standards, but by God's standards. And if that's you this morning, with every head bowed in this room today, I just want to give you an invitation to say you're, you're invited. You're invited to live as great in the kingdom. And it all starts by making a decision to follow Jesus. So if that's you today, simply raise your hand, and I want to pray with you before we leave this place. Say, I want to live great in the kingdom, and I know it starts by following Jesus, and I need to make that decision today. If that's you, simply raise your hand, and I'll pray with you before we go. Anybody here today that would say, that's me. God's stirring in my heart and I want to live for him. Over here on the right, anybody else that would say, that's me today. I want to live, live for God. And I need to start with a repentant heart. That God is good as I recognize how lost that I am without him. But he doesn't want to keep me that way. Anybody else that would say, that's me. I want to follow after God today. God, we just thank you for the way that you lead us. We thank you for your love in our lives and the way that we can serve you. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would lead us well in this life that you call us to, a, a life that, that you would say is greater than John's. Why? Because you, you left and you said, I must go so that the Holy Spirit can come. So, Jesus, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, for the life that we can have in him. And, Lord, I just pray for the person that made that decision today to follow after you. May they not only start today with that decision, but may they maintain a repentant lifestyle in Jesus' name. God, help us live for you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.